I realized when I was preparing this that I have, I have ministered from these seven verses to many people over the years, but I realized I never preached on it. And that was really kind of surprising to me. It's one of the most familiar scriptures that I've, I've used to, to help people, and I've never even shared a message on it. So I really hope and pray this morning that this will be beneficial to you or to uh, someone that you know. I think that all of us are going to be able to relate to this as we go through it together. So let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, as we open up the word of God, we do so with a, a deep sense of reverence. We also do so with a deep sense of expectation. Because whenever we open the word of God, you impart life from your heart to ours. And it's the only living word. Everything else just a printed word. But the Word of God, the Bible, is a living word. And a living word that changes us eternally. And so I pray because there are relationships, maybe amongst us or represented by us, that need a healing touch of mercy and grace. And we want to have strong marriages and families in the body of Christ. And so we ask you to speak now through your word and to open our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the opening question that I just want to bring before you is, what do you do in your marriage when one party's not living up to their calling in Christ? And, and I want to I um, just address it on both sides, even though as we go through this section of these seven short verses, we'll see that Peter is primarily addressing a wife who has an unbelieving or a backslidden husband. But in marriage and in your life, there's going to be times when one partner is not dancing. When, and, and you know, it does take two to, dan to tango. You know, you can't, if you've ever seen some of the Dancing with the Stars, when you get somebody uh, like Dick Butka on there, you know, I, I, you know, or you know, one of those guys, football guys, who just are, they, you know, the, they're not very coordinated. I forget who was the worst. Oh, Rick Perry was really bad, our governor, when he was on Dancing with the Stars. That was really, uh, that was scary. That was just downright scary. He didn't do himself any favors by being on that show. Um, and when one person isn't isn't moving on the same melody. Um, then you get you trip, you, you step on people's toes, uh, people get hurt. And that's what happens in a relationship. And as much as we would like to think that there are two people always just full on for the Lord and full on for Jesus, just stand side by side, never wavering, there have been times when Karen has led the way and there have been times when I've led the way. And there have been times when my faith has been very weak and low and times when her faith has been very weak and low. So what do you do when that happens? What do you do? So let's, let's, uh, let's just dive in here, and I want to read verse 1. Again, understand that Peter is basically addressing a, a woman who has an unbelieving or a backslidden husband. I, before I, let me just read the verse and just make one more comment. Um, Likewise, wives, be submitted to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the message, 
Again, I'm reading from the Tree of Life Bible, and other translations say, if some do not obey the word, the message, what is that? The message of grace, the message of Jesus, the gospel. By the wife's conduct, without a word, and you should underline that in your Bible. Those are the three most important words in this whole section. Without a word, they may be won over. Now, um, I thought, why, why does Peter primarily address the, the men who are backslidden and unbelievers? I, I think that men have a tendency to, to wander, uh, maybe to struggle a little bit more than women. If you, if you, if you look at the cross, and on the day of crucifixion, it was crowded with women, but there weren't a lot of men around. In fact, if you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the twelve fled from Jesus. And then they snuck around. So, so there's something about men that sometimes struggle. It doesn't mean that they fall into, into overt sin and that they just totally start doing terrible things, but, but men have a tendency to struggle, maybe a little bit more in their devotion to Christ than women. Uh, usually when you have an altar call, you'll see more women uh, re- respond to that than men. And, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if there's a pride factor involved in that. I, I, I'm not really trying to be a psychologist here. But maybe it's because we're, we're more uh, left brain than right brain, and we, and we think of everything logically, more analytically, and so we're not, we're not as adept to responding to things emotionally or understanding things that are emotional. I don't know what it is. But uh, there, you know, I look at my life and many of the times that we struggled was my fault. And so Peter says, wives, he says, be submitted to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the message by the wife's conduct without a word, they may be won over. So here's, here's the first revelation. These points are really deep <laughs> but and, and you're gonna you know laugh when my first point no no marriage is perfect well that's that seems to like duh unless you're a newlywed couple or you're dating and engaged if you're a newlywed couple you're dating and engaged you know you think that no one else has a clue and and karen and i were such a couple when we first got married we thought no one had a clue. We thought we had just cornered the market on love and understanding and that anyone else who was struggling just didn't have the faith or the love that we had and that that was never going to be challenged. Well, hello. <laughs> Calling reality, are you home? You know, um, <laughs> But we were sincere in that. And that's the naivety and the beauty of romantic love, isn't it? Come on, it is. Thank God He gives you that. I mean, that whole thing about courtship and, and this romantic love and, and everything and thinking that that other person is the greatest person that ever lived and there's nothing wrong with them at all until one day and you wake up and you look, you go, oy vey, you know. What did I do? This person that God is addressing, uh, or that through Peter, he was either an unbeliever or a backslidden Christian. It doesn't really matter. 
he wasn't obeying the message. What was the message? The message to follow Christ, the message of the gospel. He wasn't walking with God at the moment. The spiritual condition, though, of this man did not nullify the spiritual responsibility of his wife. Now that is something, you got to just park there for a minute and think about this. Peter says, wives, submit to your own husbands. See, that's the biblical instruction, is to walk in submission under the authority of the man, not the dictatorship of the man, not the abuse of the man, but under the spiritual leadership of the man in the home. That's the biblical order, Christ, the man, the wife. Christ is under God, we're under Christ, the woman is under the man, and the children are under the parents. Now, I could think the logical thing would be, well, this guy's being a total jerk. He's not doing what God has called him to do. He's not obeying the message, so I don't have to follow this guy. I don't have to submit to him. You know, And most women then take it back into their own hands. You know, because women get things done, folks. You may not realize it. It's not the men that get things done around here. It's the women. And, and the biggest temptation is when the man's not stepping up, the women will step up for him. Who do you think made all of the aircraft and all of the, the engines and all of the stuff for World War II? It wasn't the men. They were out fighting. It was the women. They stepped up. And so here we see this fact that he says, wives, be submitted to your own husbands. He says, you still need to be in that right relationship, even though this guy, but wait, this guy's not in a right relationship, Lord. And, and Peter would say, it really doesn't matter. And he says, now, your initial response is not to be a verbal correction, attack, or um, criticism. And that's usually what happens and for men and women. When, when one person in the marriage is not responding correctly, uh, the first thing that we will end up doing, men and women, we will tell our spouse where they're not measuring up <laughs> or where they messed up. And can I tell you that that is, you are basically, if you're married, man or woman, and you see your spouse is not obeying the message, and you're going to tell them they're not obeying the message and why they're not obeying the message and all the things they need to change, you know, you're the, you're the worst person to do that. Do you realize that? Because you're too close. It's going to hurt too much. It's not going to be received right. And you're just going to make it worse. You're going to make it worse. So Peter says... You got this knucklehead, and, and, and you know what? If he's not obeying the message, well, by your conduct, not your words, he'll be won over. So our initial response whenever there's problems in marriage should not be criticism, an assessment of what's wrong with them, but it should be an assessment and an adjustment of our own attitudes and actions. Now that is the last thing I want to do when I know I'm right. I want to assess and adjust my own attitude. Well, Lord, this woman needs to assess and adjust her attitude, and she's got some attitude. I gave that, yeah, I didn't do that very good, did I, Amber? But anyway, okay. 
So uh, I was trying to give it that. You did a good job. Okay. So, so when, we, when we approach it a different way, when we say, Lord, it's not really what's wrong with them that I need to think about. There's only one thing I can control in my marriage. And you know what that is? Me. There's only one person I can change in my marriage. You know who that is? Me. You know what I spent half of my marriage trying to do? Change her when I needed to change. Anybody here? Am I preaching to anybody here? Can I get an amen in the choir? Huh? A few of you made the same mistake? Or are you all like saints? Am I, am I the only real man in the house? Numero doso. That's next to Rio doso. As she brings that up, numero doso, your spouse and others are always watching. Look at verses 2 to 4. As they observe your pure and reverent conduct, notice that, even though you think this guy's a knucklehead, and you can put both on the other part, even though you think this guy's a knucklehead, they're observing you. Have you ever noticed that about junior hires? You know, you're trying to teach a squirrely tween. And you've got a group of tweens that are jumping all over the place, and they're being squirrels and squirrelettes. And, and, they're not, they're not, and then all of a sudden you ask a question, and out of the blue, because there was one that used to be one of those squirrels right here, and Taliesin would be bouncing off the walls when he was younger. Then out of the blue, he'd look and he'd, he'd go, I know the answer to that. I didn't even think he was listening to the question. <laughs> They're always observing. As they observe your pure and reverent conduct, and then he says, don't let your beauty be external. Braiding the hair, wearing gold or jewelry or fine clothes. Instead, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight, is very precious. So, realize this, and you know this, but realize that your conduct is always going to speak louder than your words. In fact, people won't care what you say if your conduct doesn't match what you say. People are watching you more than they are listening to you. Come on, when you were a kid, you know, didn't you like peanuts? Where do you think Charles Schultz got the concept of all the adults sounding like this? Wah, 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 wah. The kids are talking to each other, and then an adult gets up, and this is what you hear. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, because they're not listening, but they're watching. They're watching. Look at this next little picture, and, and the point I want to make here is that they're always watching. Always watching. A backslider unbeliever is not one to the Lord by outward means. That's what he's talking about here. May I say, women, please don't stop wearing makeup and please don't put your hair up in a bun. I hope, hallelujah, we're delivered from that. And ugly dresses. Come on. Let's not start wearing them ugly dresses. He's not talking about you know, not being stylish or not looking nice. What he's saying is that you're not going to solve this problem 
externally because it's an internal problem. And all you women look beautiful this morning, by the way. And uh, some of you look much more beautiful than you started out. But anyway, I mean, I'm just... <laughs> I want to put this picture up there. In my, in my marriage class, I talk about what I term the drawbridge concept of, of marriage. And, and if you look at this, and, and I, I think this is from the great Northwest, and whenever I go up to Washington, Oregon, they have a lot of these bridges on the rivers and everything. You'll see that uh, there is actually, uh, usually there's like two, two houses or two control centers on either side of the bridge. Why is that? Well, you can see the bridge separates and there's nothing connecting it until it comes together and kind of locks in place. And so... The left side of the bridge only can control the left side of the bridge, and the right side of the bridge only can control the right side of the bridge. And in a relationship, when there is a, a break or there, there is one party that just puts its bridge up, there's no, there's, no, there's no traffic going across that bridge anymore, is there? And when there's a break between two, it's like both ends fly up and nothing can happen across that highway. Well, again, what we try to do in, in, in relationships is we try to control the other half of the bridge. But think about this in the concept of a real drawbridge. The motor and gears for this side are here, and the motor and gears for this side are here. As much as I want to stare at this side, if I'm this side, I can go, I'm not going to move the gears. I don't, my, all my buttons on my side, they only control the gears and motors in me. They don't control any gears or motors on the other side. So the only thing that I can do in marriage, and this is what Peter's trying to get at, the only thing that I can do in a relationship that is strained or broken is to lower my half of the bridge and just trust God for the other half of the bridge. And that's what Peter's trying to get at. He says, listen, he's not going to be one, this blockhead is not going to be one through your words. You're not going to put on a fancy dress and, and, and uh, dinner with candles and think he's going to come in and all of a sudden that's going to pave it over. That's not going to work. It's not going to be by writing a secret letter of all the faults they need to change. It's going to be when you start changing, men and women. Do you get this? I'm, we're, we're talking about. When you start changing, then all of a sudden, he's going to look or she's going to look and say, what in the world is going on with this person that used to drive me crazy? Can I tell you something? And Pastor Terry, if there's anything I can give you um, before I leave, it's this nugget. Um, and I pray that you don't have to go through 40 years of ministry to learn this. I just want to pass this on to you. And this is, a, this is true. I've done some knucklehead things in my time of being a pastor. But I never meant to do a knucklehead thing. I never did a knucklehead thing on purpose. Does that, you understand what I'm saying? I'm just a knucklehead sometimes. <laughs> and there are times when people, I've, I've been a knucklehead and people have been gracious and they've forgiven me. And we've been reconciled and we've worked it out. 
And there have been other times when I did something knucklehead, a knucklehead thing that I didn't even know I was being a knucklehead. You know, can you imagine how that would ever happen here? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I did something that was really knuckleheadish, and, and a person got offended, and they left the church because I was a momentary knucklehead. Here's what I found. In all of the years of ministry, when something like that has happened, and I know that I had no intent to be that knucklehead, I just was, you know, didn't maybe restrain myself like I should have, or, you know, I just said a joke I shouldn't have said, or, you know, but I knew in my heart there was no maliciousness or anything. When someone leaves and doesn't work through something like that, when there's this fissure, it's because of something that's going on in their life. It's not something that's going on in your life. Hmm. Because if, if I'm growing in the Lord and you're growing in the Lord, if, if I got knucklehead, if I said something knucklehead to Mitch, then he would come up and he'd say, hey, knucklehead. <laughs> we need to talk about this and we'd work it out. Why? Because we both want to be walking with the Lord. But if he has an offense or if he has a hurt that he hasn't brought to the cross or, or he has a deeper need in his life and he's not wanting to face that, and, and even if I go and apologize, he may just break away. And I found that it's, 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 it's the hurts in our lives that cause us to break away from the re restoration God desires in our lives. Does that make sense? I used to take that really personally. I don't anymore. So Peter is t saying this. He's saying, you know, work on your half of the bridge. Um, you know, don't, don't think it's going to be something external. It, God looks on the hidden person of the heart. What is the hidden person of the heart? Well, in, in Psalm 51, 17, uh, David writes, he says, you know, God doesn't need your cattle or your, your gold or anything else. He said, this is what God needs. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. The hidden person of the heart is the repentant heart. And who needs to repent first? The strong person. Does that make sense? Because you're the only one that can when someone's bound up, when the enemy has gotten an advantage in someone's life, when they have fallen away from following the message, the only person that can take the first step is the person who's delighting in the Lord, who's desiring God's healing, who's wanting to see God restore. That's the person who needs to repent and lower their bridge and say, I'm keeping my bridge down whether they lower their bridge or not. Do you know, I wonder how many marriages could be saved, could have been saved, if there was one person willing to lower their half of the bridge and just stand there and let God deal with them until their spouse came around. Awful quiet. 1 Peter 3, 5. By the way, you wonder, who are those people? That's Abraham and Sarah. 
It says, for this is the way the holy women who put their hope, notice this, there's another underline, who put their hope in who? Oh, wait, they didn't put their hope in the prayer for their spouse. They didn't put their hope in the book of 10 ways to get your spouse to do what you want. They didn't put their hope in anything else, but they put their hope in who? God. It says they used to beautify themselves long ago. What? You mean hoping in God is beautiful? That's the only thing that's beautiful in your life. When you hope in God. And God looks upon the heart that hopes in Him and He sees it as beautiful. Being submitted to their own husbands. Wait, there it is again. He's a knucklehead. You still want me to submit to him? He says, well, look at what the holy women did. Just as Sarah, verse 6, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, that means my leader. You're not, uh, we only, Jesus is our only Lord, but you understand the terminology in the Old Testament understanding. It says, you've become her daughters by doing what is good, not fearing intimidation. So here, here's the point. We have godly examples who have walked this pathway before you. Here's the weird thing about Sarah, and I'm not, this is, God never calls you as a spouse, male or female, to be abused, to be physically abused, mentally abused. He doesn't call you to be a doormat, to be walked on and have your, wipe your feet on the other person or allow the other person to wipe their feet on you. That isn't what this is talking about. This is talking about that I still relate to my spouse in the order that God has established and honor her in the way that he honors her or she honors me in the way that God honors me regardless of whether I'm living up to that or not. Well, why? Do you realize that through that act of faith that you are setting the bar for God to lift them up, to restore them, that you are treating them in the way that they deserve to be treated, whether they deserve to be treated that way or not? Did you hear that? Well, I'm going to, yeah, I'll be nice to her once she does this. Well, I'm not going to do that until he does this. And they sit on either side of the couch. I've, I've seen it over 40 years. Well, someone please move. And Karen and I were on either end of the couch. Lord, the Lord wants to restore us. He wants to heal us. And Sarah, she, she, this is a hard truth to grasp. And there's two sections of Scripture in there, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, where Abraham was worried when he went to Pharaoh, and then also when he went to, um, who was the other place? I, Abimelech. And, and, you know, Sarah was, she was, Wow. I mean, Abraham married up when he married Sarah. And Abraham knew it. My dad always said that. He said, you married up, son. He said, you lucky bum. I know it. I know I married up. 
And Abraham says, now listen, you know what Pharaoh does? You know, he sees a good-looking lady. He, he, he just takes her for himself. So, you know, uh, would you, I don't want him to kill me if he thinks you're my wife. So would you tell him you're my sister? Well, she was kind of related in a long runabout way. So they weren't really totally lying, kind of, sort of. And Sarah went along with it. Now you say, that's terrible. Well, I know, it doesn't sound logical to me. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us. Now, Sarah never had to face the fact of what she would do if Pharaoh tried to take her into his chamber. She never had to face that fact either with Pharaoh or Abimelech. Each time God intervened right then and there for Sarah because she honored her husband, even though he was a knucklehead. Now, is that a knucklehead thing to do or not? Give him the knucklehead of the year award. But Sarah obeyed him and put her hope in God, and God delivered Sarah both times. Now, if any one of these men would have tried to do something, Sexual with Sarah, I believe she would have said something. But she was trusting in God at that moment in her life, and God delivered her. That's the example we're given. I, if I was a woman, I would say, I don't like it. <laughs> but that's the difference between walking according to the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God and your own wisdom and knowledge. That's the difference between leaning to your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledging Him. Last point. 1 Peter 3, 7. In the same way, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Though they are weaker partners, honor them as equal heirs of the grace of life. So that whole thing about weaker cannot mean inferior. He's dealing with something differently because if you're all equal heirs of the grace of life, then you are equal. He's talking about something different we'll get to in a second. In this way, he says, your prayers will not be hindered. So my last point is this. We need to learn to practice the discipline of empathy. Do You know, empathy is not, a, is not uh, something you're born with. It's something you learn. And you have to learn to practice it. I'm very embarrassed to admit this. But I, I, I've lived with my wife for 42 years. This is nothing bad. It's just embarrassing. And my wife doesn't have peripheral vision on the left side. So... Sometimes if you're walking by her, you're on her left side, she may not see you. And some people may think that, wow, Karen didn't say hi to me. Well, she didn't see you. And over these whole 42 years, I keep forgetting that. Isn't that a knucklehead thing to do? So we'll go to a restaurant and I'll sit down on her left side and she'll look at me and she'll say, oh, and I get up and I go over on the right side. I mean, I just don't even think that's, Guys are knuckleheads, okay? But what really made me a knucklehead was I never knew for 42 years 
about the other areas of her vision impairment. I guess to be fair, we never talked about it. And she never explained it to me. And I didn't know that she couldn't see here, and that she couldn't see here, and that she couldn't see. And unless she's looking almost straight on something, she can't see it. And I, I, there's no way for me to know what that's like. On the way, on the way, and then I'd always, I always would kind of get on her because it kind of scares me when she's driving, and and she and she always drifts to the left. I mean, you know, she's driving, and all of a sudden, there she goes. I go, keep your eye on the road, dear. And there she goes. Well, I, on the way, thinking about this this morning, I closed my left eye as I was driving to the church. And I realized, like right now, I can't see anybody on that left side. So I'd be doing that too. I'd be drifting off to the left to see what's over there. And if I couldn't see up there, I'd be looking up there. And I'd be looking down there. And I never knew that. 42 years. 42 years. In five months. You see, the only way you can practice empathy is to learn about your spouse. That's why it's the husband's greatest call to understand the wife. Now, I hope I don't forget this. And when we go to breakfast this morning, I'm sitting on her right side. I, I, I started to think, how could she have put up with me all these years? She's never seen me! Unless I'm right in her face. It all makes sense now. <laughs> the greatest call, husbands, is for you to understand your wife. And, and women, I know it seems like an impossible thing to understand the male brain. Can I simplify it for you? That's the male brain. It's really not doing anything. You think it should be engaged and really know what's going on, but it's kind of like a puppy dog. You know, you know the puppy dog that you know, just got you aggravated and slobbered on you one last time, and you gave it a swat, and it went sliding across the room, and he just comes back? He thought that was a game. You know, we don't know. We really don't know. <laughs> Weaker does not mean inferior. It highlights really the emotional and physical differences of men and women. Generally, women are weaker physically. Although I've seen some women I wouldn't want to tangle with. I dated a woman years before I met Karen, and she had a black belt, Eddie, and she flipped me, and that was it. We were done dating. <laughs> I figure, man, I'm not dating someone who can flip me. So that was the end of that relationship. But women are more emotional, too. 
I mean, you know, we don't get it. All of a sudden, you know, I'm sure, Amber, you get moved emotionally a lot. And so if John was here, he'd just be handing you the tissues, not knowing what he was handing them to you for, but just if because. If John was here, you'd be avoiding contact. I'm not going to comment on that. Anyway. But, you know, we're not wound, we're not wired emotionally like that. You know, we're just, we're different. You know, uh, it, so weaker doesn't mean inferior. It means that, understand that we're so different. A man needs to learn about these differences. A woman needs to help her husband understand them. Okay, he's not going to get it from a book. He's not going to get it through osmosis. He's not going to get a gift from God to where he understands everything about you. you got to help him. Ladies, help him. Please help him. He's begging you, even though he's not saying it, even though he won't admit it. He's begging you inside. I want to know. You know, so that's what finally happened about the eyesight. I said, I said, what is the deal, though? I thought you only couldn't see the left side. What, what are you talking about? And then she told me. The key for both is so that they can be moving in the healing streams of God's grace. We're going to take them back up. We're closing. And that together they can have a fruitful and powerful prayer life. Here's the implication. If there's no understanding, listen to this, this is very, very important in marriage. If there's no understanding, there's no agreement. Does that make sense? And if there's no agreement, there's no power in your prayer life. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you. And if two of you, two or more of you agree as touching something. So if you're not walking in this understanding, there's no agreement. Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? And the answer is no. So how can you approach the throne of grace in faith if you're not walking in agreement? And how can you walk in agreement if you're not growing in understanding? Do you see what Peter's getting at here? Last scripture. I love this scripture in Ecclesiastes. Use it in every marriage I do. It talks about that two are better than one and they can keep each other warm, and one who's alone will be cold and sure. It talks about how if one falls down and he has someone, they'll pick him up. But if one falls down and he's alone, he's just going to go, I'm falling down and I can't get up. <laughs> Come on, you know that commercial. <laughs> and then finally, in Ecclesiastes 4.12, it says, Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. When there's unity, when there's a growing discipline of empathy, even a blockhead has hope. Let's stand as we close. My heart is cold as 
my world is falls apart Lord, you put me back together I have found redemption in the of Christ. My body might be done, but I'll always feel alive. offering. Lord, we worship you this morning. We're just closing with that one song. I want to leave you with this charge. I know that everyone in here has been a knucklehead at some time in your life. And you may be involved in a situation where there's a knucklehead in your family or your life. And how do you deal with a knucklehead?
Well, we've talked about how a spouse is to deal with that knucklehead, but how do you and I deal with the knuckleheads that surround us? We have two choices. We can deal with them like the father dealt with. Would you say the prodigal son was a knucklehead? Took his inheritance, spent it all, ran away, lived with prostitutes, gambled, drank, ended up in a pig slot, finally came to himself, went home. The father every day was looking for him down the road. When the father saw him, he ran to him, he sprinted to him. And he threw his arms around him and he, he said, give him the robe, put the ring on his finger, and kill the fatted calf. Let's have a celebration because my, my son that was lost has now been found. But the elder brother didn't like it. He got mad. Because he said, it's not fair. This guy's a knucklehead. I'm going to write the knucklehead version, I think. This guy's the knucklehead and he took all your money. I've been here every day working, 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 doing my part, doing my part. And you've never thrown a party for me. Ever I get is just macaroni and cheese and hot dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Some of you said, yeah, that sounds good for lunch. And, and the father said, don't you know? He says, everything I've had has always been yours. Shouldn't we rejoice when someone who's been a knucklehead comes to be restored. We've all been there. We've all done it. Let's have restoring hearts. Father, let us be restored. Let us be those who are called the restorers of the breach. Let us run to the one who has fallen to raise him up or her up. Let us not run with judgment, but let us run with arms of love and compassion. Let us practice the discipline of empathy that you practice towards us. Let us show mercy, not judgment. We pray. Keep our marriages strong. Keep our relationships healthy. So our prayers will not be hindered. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. Go in the love of the Lord. You're dismissed. We love you. Thank you for being with us. Have a great, great week.